The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Greg Laud. I'm Clayton English. And this is The War on Drugs. Here we go. Episode 10. We are reaching the end of our War on Drugs journey, man. Final chapter of season one. Yeah, yeah, we getting down to that last little piece, man. That the last little piece of blunt left, man. It's the, it's the roach. Get you your know? tweezers out. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes it's it's the most potent part and it's the most hard hitting part, and I think that's what this episode is today. What a beautiful metaphor, Clayton. You have a hey, hey. Sometimes things just come together nicely. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think at this point in our journey, man, we got to ask, and I think you're the right person to ask this question to, how long are we going to continue to keep treating addicts like criminals? Uh, I always like to have an answer for you, Clayton. If you ask me statistics and this or that or what's legal, what's a Schedule One drug, I, I, I'll give it to you. But It's got to the point where that's what I expect from you. I expect nothing less. Well, you, <laughs> you, you should really lower your expectations at this point with me, man. I mean, I wish I had a good answer. Um, I think we're getting closer, but I don't think we're there yet. I think more and more people are understanding addiction. But, man, the war on drugs, it's not just the— 
the incarceration. It's not just the civil forfeiture. It's not all these things that we talked about, the policies. It really is the, the social fabric of our country and how it has been ingrained because we've just been hit with this propaganda machine for, you know, over 100 years now. And right. that's really, really hard. It's going to take a long time, but hopefully podcasts like this, more people speaking, you know, people like Morgan Godwin, our guest today, you know, kind of telling her story and understanding the tragedy of the drug war um, and how it touches yeah, on some of the things. Hopefully that'll help. You know, maybe, maybe it's not just one answer, but I think Morgan actually, she shows us from the top to the bottom or should I say the bottom to the top, how this war on drugs like affects people and everything that we've talked about in previous episodes, I think are highlighted and illustrated in her story. So um, today we're going to do something a little different. You know, I know most of the time it's us and the guests and uh, we're jumping in there and stuff. But today we're just going to get out the way, man. We're going to get out the way because this is a story that you need to hear uninterrupted, unfiltered and from the mouth of the person who lived it. Yeah, bad news, you don't get to hear Clayton's smooth, soulful voice. Good news, you don't have to hear my nasally deviated septum voice for the next 30 <laughs> minutes. So, um, And we're going to steal an idea from from Jason Flom, who you may remember from one of our quick fixes. He's, you know, the, has his own podcast, Wrongful Convictions, where he does amazing work helping get people exonerated. He has a thing on there called Closing Arguments, where he allows for the experts and guests that he's brought on to kind of have that final word. And we're going to kind of take that and expand on it and give that final word to Morgan for the next you know, 30, 35 minutes for y'all to kind of hear her journey. Um, Cause I think that's going to be the best way to really hear this and really wrap up this season um, with a real life example of, you know, tragedy and triumph. So yeah, we'll let Morgan take it away. Let's go. I always felt like a fairly upstanding citizen, and it wasn't always easy to maintain that during heroin addiction. There was times when I had no money, and I would think, well, should I shoplift? Should I steal? And I just couldn't do it. I watched some of my friends go there, and I knew it wasn't for me. I would pick up an extra shift at the Domino's, and I would make it, and I always made it. And I never turned to other forms of crime, and it didn't matter. The first time I tried to kill myself, I was 11 years old. I was a painfully awkward and shy child. Had I came of age now, I would have probably been diagnosed as being on the spectrum. Definitely neurodivergent. I don't care to label it anymore because I'm grown and my life is fine. Definitely had social issues, severe social issues, severe mental health issues. There was violence in my household, just, you know, the standard run-of-the-mill stuff. I had a middle-class background, but then was cast into sudden poverty at the age of 16. My mom had a gambling addiction and was caught embezzling and her house was foreclosed. By the time I was 16, I had found the drug subculture. We had ecstasy pills, then cocaine, and then this girl who had broken her leg riding horses had 40 milligram Oxycontin pills. And she said, I'll trade you two of mine for two years. Ecstasy. I'm like, yeah, sure. And we do the trade. That is the first time I tried Oxycontin. I just crushed it up with the coating on and all. I didn't know better. Snort it. And I remember thinking, why did I ever do cocaine? <laughs> this is so much better. Come to find out, Oxycontin was actually really expensive. And so we couldn't afford to do it that much. I was already working as a pizza delivery driver. This was right after I turned 18 years old. And my friend Justin, we went to high school together. 
and I meet him and he sells Oxycontin. That's like how he makes his living. Justin was like, yo, that's a lot of money that you just spent. And like, I'm here to make money, but you're my actual friend. You know, there's an alternative, right? And he showed us how to smoke heroin on foil. And I was like, oh my God. And my, and my mind exploded. When I was 16 and there was no food in the house, I dropped out of high school to go work full time at McDonald's because I had to eat. And so life was pretty miserable. And so drugs were an escape for that day. And they were pretty fun. You know what? They worked quite well in the beginning and for a long time, honestly. Drugs work. That's why people do them. So it gave me something to look forward to. People are medicating emotional pain. They've learned maladaptive coping mechanisms. Most often addiction is a response to childhood trauma or sometimes adult trauma, but especially adverse childhood experiences. Then the societal response to that is traumatizing you further and then sitting and scratching our heads like, well, why isn't it working? That pain, existential dread, physical pain, emotional pain, that's why people are using. We try to punish the hurt out of people. You cannot punish the hurt out of people. I worked in the hood as close as, you know, Portland is, has a hood. I'm in my Domino's uniform. I remember my boss needed to cut one of the delivery drivers and I volunteered and I regretted that for the rest of my life. Then my friend, Tim, who works at the bar two streets down, he texts me. He says, I'm so sick. I'm sick at work. Please come. I don't get off until 2 a.m. He's a bartender. Can you get me through my shift? And I was like, okay. And there I am in my Domino's uniform, sitting in my car in the parking lot of this really grungy dive bar, cooking a shot. And I have these big over-the-ear headphones on because I'm watching How I Met Your Mother on my phone. And so I have like, it gets stuck in my dash and I'm just like cooking the shot. And then I just remember, boom, boom, boom. And I look to my left and it's a freaking Portland police officer. And I know right then I am going to jail. And the police report's funny because I had like drawn up the heroin in the syringe as he was knocking on my door and he's like, step out of the car. I squirted it on the ground and he tried to arrest me for obstruction of evidence for that. And the DA declined to prosecute, but then I had a gram or just less than a gram hidden in my car. Like it was about $80 worth of heroin, 24 hours worth of heroin. And so that's what they gave me the felony for. I just want to clarify, being addicted to heroin is synonymous with being a hardened criminal in the eyes of the law. No one was accusing me of being a drug dealer at that time. All they were accusing me of was simple drug possession. And that's all that it takes in the United States to be considered a hardened criminal. But it's Portland, right? So progressive. So they put me into the kinder, gentler to alternative to incarceration drug court. I ended up going to jail (laughs) over and over and over because I couldn't stop doing heroin. But I did everything else that they asked me to do. I would go to my groups. I would meet with my PO. I would pee in their cup and it would be positive for heroin. (laughs) But I'm like, but hey, look, I'm I'm engaging. I'm here. But I I was still using. That didn't work for them. They didn't like that. So call it what you want to call it. Uh, Drug court is just an extension of the war on drugs. 
But I'm jumping through their hoops because at the time, I hadn't yet been convicted of the felony. It was still pending, right? It was deferred. So as long as I, you jump through all our hoops for an hour, a year and a half and we'll dismiss it. So I'm jumping through their hoops. I'd done 28 days in inpatient with my car parked out front of the treatment center. I'm out in Washington County. I get pulled over. He said, wavering within the lane, which is a fun one that they love to use, uh, like suspicion of DUI. The officer asked me to search my car. No, sir, I do not consent to searches. Over and over, starts threatening me, says he's going to do a field sobriety test. I said, go right ahead. And then he just starts screaming at me. What the fuck is that? What's that? Hand it to me now. And I'm like, what? What? Is, I don't know what he's talking about. And I'm like picking up random bits of detritus. Like, is it this? What do you want, dude? What do you want? And he, and he makes it sound like it's a weapon. He was talking about pieces of trash. And I picked up like the first thing was like a receipt. He was like, no. I picked up the next thing. And he was like, no. And I picked up the next thing. He goes, that. He takes it out. He opens my door, snatches me up, and pulls me out of the car, shoves me against the car, and pats me down. And I'm like, what is going on? And he said that piece of plastic tested positive for heroin residue and that I was under arrest for felony drug possession. I was like, dude, I picked my car up from treatment today. That, that car has been sitting in the treatment center parking lot since before. What do you mean I'm under arrest for residue? And it's actually super common. There's thousands of Americans have gotten felony convictions for residue amounts not visible to the naked eye on detritus, on trash. I am really emboldened. I go in and, and I said, this was an illegal search, fruit of the poisonous tree. There's no way that any of this is valid. I, I declined the search. And he pulls out the police report and it says here, can we search your car? And then it says, Miss Godvin, yeah, sure, go ahead. And I go, Ex fucking excuse me. And I'm like, pull the dash cam footage. They're lying. I did not consent to that search. In fact, I repeatedly declined. And he goes, ah, oh, well, the Washington County Sheriff Department doesn't actually have dash cams or body cameras. And my lawyer had to sit me down and said, hey, listen, you were just arrested for drug possession a few months ago. You are literally in drug court. Do you know how this looks? It is going to be your word, a junkie, for a cop in a court of law. Who do you think is going to win that? And then if you lose that at trial, it's going to be so much worse for you. I can probably get you a plea deal that has no jail time, but a felony conviction. But a felony conviction. And uh, I got both those felonies back to back. We'll be right back with the war on drugs. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please, go to lavaforgood.com survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. The War on Drugs podcast is sponsored by Stand Together. 
Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest changemakers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems. Christina Dent is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to end the war on drugs, the root cause of so many problems in communities across the country. As a foster mom, she came into contact with the war on drugs when she saw how it was ripping apart the families she worked with. She witnessed how kids were affected and how mothers wanted something better for their families but didn't have the tools to get there themselves. Christina Dent started a nonprofit called End It For Good because she knew there was a better solution to help these families. She's working to end the war on drugs in Mississippi and build consensus around the state to help families struggling with substance abuse problems find a different path forward than the one they've been given. Stand Together has many more stories like this one as it partners with thousands of changemakers who are driving solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and the criminal justice system. To learn more about Stand Together, their partners, or how you can partner with Stand Together, go to standtogether.org. The definition of addiction is continuing to use drugs despite negative consequences. Therefore, laying on additional negative consequences does not work. Addiction itself, outside of the sphere of criminal law, is already using despite negative consequences. It's causing issues at work. It's causing issues in my relationship. I use anyway. That's addiction. But then the justice system coming in and saying, well, how about if we make it worse? Will that make it better? <laughs> and surprisingly, no. <laughs> no, it does not. I had gotten a felony conviction while receiving federal financial aid, so that torched my ability to continue going to school. I got fired from my job. I got an automatic six-month license suspension, which was standard practice if you were caught with drugs in your car. But that took away my livelihood as I was a pizza delivery driver. For the first time in my life, I found myself unemployed. So I'm like living in my car, staying in broken down RVs with my friends. I just descended into the, the bowels of addiction and the underworld at that time. Those things that kept me one foot in addiction and one foot out because I still saw a better way for myself. I lost that one foot out, so I jumped in, both feet in addiction, because what was the point? I just remember this one time I lined up three syringes, as much heroin as each could hold, and I lined them up in a row. Didn't even bother trying to find a vein, stuck them right in my hip, injected one after the other. And I went to lay down on my bed, and I really hoped I wouldn't wake up, but damned if I always woke up. <laughs> I just didn't care whether I lived or died. I was so suicidal. And then I had some inner voice shine through and say, hey, this isn't actually the life you want for yourself. This isn't actually you. You want better. I was frustrated with my own lack of self-control. I did not want to keep using as if I there I was of two minds a fractured mind warring and so I wanted to remove that element of self-control and I wanted someone to make me take my medicine for seven days because the issue with the suboxone is I would take it a day or two and then I would say you know what screw this I'm gonna do heroin and I would stop taking it and I'd never taken it multiple days in a row I was never stabilized on this medicine and I just you know concocted this grand plan of well in jail, they'll make me take it. As long as I can get that those seven days stabilized, I think from there I'll be good. And so my next drug court check-in, 
I walked in with my Suboxone and a letter from my doctor to the courts imploring them to keep me on it because it was important life-saving medication and my written prescription. And I walked up to the podium and I asked Judge Ryan to take me into custody because I needed a fresh start. I needed to be stabilized on my medication. I volunteered for jail. I had some notion that jail was there to help us. Even after all the life I'd lived and being persecuted by the police, prosecuted, I still was raised with this, the authority is there to protect us, military brat mentality. And that really permeated deep into my subconscious. You ask me now, why would I volunteer for jail? It sounds ridiculous. I was obviously incredibly naive and stupid. But at the time, you know, the system was leaning hard on me. And I thought, okay, what if I lean in? And I get into the Multnomah County Jail that night. And I ask the nurse for my Suboxone. And she laughs in my face and tells me that they do not prescribed that medication. And I kicked cold turkey in an open dorm with 77 women staring at me while I puked into a trash can with fluorescent lights that never turned off. And for seven days of agony, I had to remind myself that I chose that, that I did that to myself. This was about six, eight months after that day I volunteered for jail. My mom died. She was a Air Force veteran, 100% disabled from her service, and she took prescription medication. But she took too many morphine pills one night, whether on purpose or because she had a migraine, I will never know. I was supposed to be the one that died. I'm the suicidal junkie. Uh, But I found her and had to call the police. And that meant that I got life insurance, her military life insurance. Real clever, she'd put it into a stipend for me so that I didn't get it in a batch. So I got like one lump sum, $30,000. I thought if I could just buy enough heroin that all my problems would be complete. Like I really always thought for, you know, since the time I was like 19, 20, that my only problem in life was that I didn't have enough heroin. And if I could just have enough, everything would be complete. I was just doing more and more heroin, burning through the $30,000 so fast, realizing, holy shit, I'm going to run out of money within a couple of weeks. And it was right in that period that my friend Justin texted me, the one who first showed me how to smoke heroin off foil that first time I overdosed. He'd saved me from several other overdoses later. He texted me looking for a gram. And he'd left his wallet at my mom's house the day before she died when he came over. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I can sell you a gram out of my bag. And I have your wallet. I can finally give you back your wallet. I was so proud of myself because my mom had died. I was addicted to heroin and I had kept his wallet safe. And I knew where it was. I had moved into a trap house and I still had saved his wallet. When you're addicted to heroin, you will find these little semblances of normality to latch onto. These little moments of responsibility and so i was so proud of myself for having saved his wallet and so i said yeah i would sell him a gram out of my bag he came i sold it to him and then i'm like oh let me grab your wallet he's like no no i'll get it next time i gotta go and i was like okay the next night he texted me again looking for two grams and i'm sitting there i'm waiting for justin to come and the door just flies open and it's this one table and they just stick guns in my face and are screaming at me and I think oh man my roommate's in trouble because he's the one that sells heroin and then they read the warrant and it was in my name I'm like what why me what do I do (laughs) I wasn't like selling to support my habit I didn't shower I didn't leave my house I didn't do nothing 
come to find out that Justin had not texted me that day. It was the police pretending to be my dead best friend. I was only informed of that while being put in handcuffs and being told that I was being arrested for drug delivery resulting in death for the overdose death of Justin DeLong, a charge that carries a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. Justin had died the night before. The night that I sold him at Graham, he went home and overdosed alone in his bedroom. Dustin was one of my closest friends, closest and oldest friends, and I knew his, his sister, I knew his family. I was in between panicked and ashamed, so I didn't attend the funeral service. His family did not want to see me go to prison. They testified on my behalf at my sentencing. They had watched him struggle with addiction, and they thought that the prosecution was cruel uh, because that Justin had been so abused by the system while he lived. They were really clear that they didn't blame me and that if I held any guilt that I needed to forgive myself. That was a terrible period in my life. And then I find myself in jail. And of course, you know, I'm detoxing cold turkey because despite the fact that jail has buprenorphine, they never prescribe it. But that is not when I got clean. Wish it was. Wish I could say it was. <laughs> not. My mom had died six months before. My friend Justin had died three months before that. And I was literally being prosecuted with his death, which really complicates how to grieve, I will say. There's so much heroin in jail. There's much more heroin in women's jail than men's jail because women have an easier time smuggling in the drug. And so there, there is a lot of drugs that come into county jail. And I saw absolutely no point in not using them. Jail is miserable. My life was objectively miserable. And so I sought escape anywhere that I could. I was having issues with self-control and I was still using, so I went to court and I asked the judge to transfer me to Columbia County Jail, which I had been to and knew had far fewer drugs because it's so small. There's a lot less traffic coming in. There's only like 10 women in the dorm. And there I found an environment that promoted my sobriety and my self-worth because the deputies were kind. And they called me by my name and not a number. And they were just so respectful. It promoted this mutual respect and kindness like I have never seen in a jail or prison before or after. And I really credit them with like setting me on the course to true recovery and like achieving success because they were the first ones who told me that I could and that I wasn't just a piece of shit because I did drugs. And I thought, oh, that's right. I, I'm better than this and I can achieve more than I've been achieving. And I never used heroin again. We'll be right back with the War on Drugs podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. 
In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I realized, like, okay, this really bad thing happened. Maybe I can channel this suffering into something positive. And I know that sounds wild because I'm talking about people dying. And my mom overdosed from morphine, Justin overdosed. But I just, I couldn't let it all be meaningless. There was so much hurt that I lived and somehow survived. I couldn't let it be meaningless. And so I got out. I still had $12,000 left in my bank account for my mom's life insurance. So I was able to pay cash for my first quarter tuition at Portland State University. And I decided I was majoring in public health, even though I didn't really know what that meant. I knew it had something to do with the opioid crisis and that I wanted to channel my suffering. Then the dean of... The School of Public Health, Dr. David Bingsberg, found me. I don't know. I signed up for like a coffee with him. And he was like, you're special. You're going places. And no one had ever told me that before. Born State didn't help me at all with the transition. I'd never heard of Google Docs. I had no idea what any of my classmates were talking about. I felt like I came from Mars. They're talking about like memes and music videos. And I didn't have the internet for four years. I had no idea. I just felt like I was from Mars. But then the dean, the dean is sitting there and like, How can I help you? What do you need? And introducing me to people. And then he invited me to speak on a local news town hall. And that changed my life. We started a group. I was like peripherally involved in the justice involved student group there. There was a few, but 
because of the nature of criminalization and shame and stigma, very few people would self-identify. So it was hard to find even the few that did exist because I was the only one shouting it from the mountaintops. I was sent to prison for my best friend's overdose. But then I realized the more I told my story, people would come up to me and be like, I have a felony too. I was giving people permission. Hey, it's okay to talk about this. This isn't your fault. Like this, this system is broken, not you. You are not a bad person because you did a bad thing and especially not just because you did drugs. I just would tell my story with anyone who would listen. And so in 2019, they said, hey, they're looking at a measure to decriminalize drugs in Oregon. I jumped at it because doing nothing, literally not responding at all to substance use would be superior to what we are doing now. So measure 110 passed by an overwhelming majority of the voters in November 2020. Now, possession of small quantities of drugs, so for heroin, it's one gram or less, is a class E violation akin to a traffic citation. It comes with a $100 fine that can be waived if you complete a screening. Just essentially, do you have a substance use disorder or not type screening that will connect you to services. What it does is it stops the harm. So no longer are we making people worse. We're not getting people fired from their jobs. We're not making them homeless because they choose to use drugs. So the harm has stopped. The healing phase is much more complex. After we decriminalized drugs, the Oregon Health Authority was tasked with creating the Oversight and Accountability Council that was written into the measure as a bunch of people with lived experience who were going to drive the ship. Unheard of in government. I applied, and because I was so heavily criminalized for my drug possession and then got out of prison to major in public health and become a drug policy researcher, <laughs> I was appointed successfully. I am a council member on the Measure 110 Oversight and Accountability Council, it's called the OAC, and we meet several times a week, usually trying to get this money out uh, to fund the behavioral health resource networks in every single county in the state. We're currently trying to get $270 million out the door. I did the math. I approved $36 million to go out. It's just like, who am I <laughs> to be like, yes, here's $36 million. It goes to harm reduction. So that can include syringe exchange, naloxone distribution, um, some wound care and drug checking. We fund intensive outpatient, less intensive outpatient, vastly trying to ramp up medications for opioid use disorder. So we're funding methadone, suboxone clinics, getting methadone and suboxone into the jails. We're also paying for peer mentoring, which is huge, and housing. So the point of everything that we're paying for is we are giving people better options. And with better options come better choices. Why do we have mass incarceration at the same time as the worst overdose crisis in human history? That's because everything we're doing is making it worse. We are doing everything so wrong. Okay, and so even our best public health messaging does not reach people we have pushed into, stigmatizes them so badly. And then so we push them really far away and we put all these barriers in between productive normal society and their drug use. And we make it almost insurmountable for them to come back. 
oh, okay, you don't want to be living in a tent smoking fentanyl anymore? Well, too bad you have seven felony convictions, outstanding court fees, you know, like, oh, you can't get housing. Oh, no, you can't get this job. And it's like people who need more help because they've been struggling with addiction. And I just mean the like actual psychological effects of addiction. That's a person who needs more help. But because of our criminal justice system, they get infinitely more barriers. And then we wonder why people don't get better. You see, when people are presented with better options, they make better choices. And as you restrict their options, the choices worsen. There's nothing about using drugs that inherently makes you a criminal. It's not like using oxycodone comes with a, like the, a side effect on the label is shoplifting. As if every other facet of your character decays and you only become a drug user, which is synonymous with, you know, sinner, criminal. Okay, that is not real. Drugs do not make you be a criminal or engage in criminal conduct. But a funny thing happens is if you believe that it's true and then you create laws that respond as if drug use were criminal, that actually promotes people into criminal activity. That really destroys hope for the future and everyone needs hope for the future. I remember one of the times in treatment, I was writing hip hop songs to myself and there's this line, it says, always told I had so much potential, but now that shit is inconsequential because I already had felonies and there was just no hope. Held the whole world in my palm, melted it down into a spoon, shot it in my arm, something like that. And that just is, is really illustrative for how I felt about what my future would hold. And as I sit before you today, I have changed Oregon law multiple times. I regularly work with my United States Senator. Try to change federal law. It doesn't work. So far, it hasn't worked. But that's because our Senate is gridlocked. Um, I have a career that I didn't know existed, founded around the fact that I have been to prison, okay, and that I was addicted to heroin. Those are my primary two job qualifications. I have been able to channel all of the hurt and the harm and the suffering that I lived through, that was imposed on us, that we that we got ourselves into, both types. And I try to create a better world for the people that came after me. Already, I know in the state of Oregon, no other Oregonian will experience what my friends and I did. Every single friend that I lost to overdose, to heroin overdose, was incarcerated repeatedly. What are we doing? If we're not doing this to save lives, what are we doing? My success was entirely despite the war on drugs. In fact, the war on drugs tried to crush me. I am the exception. I am not the rule. And that is the problem. Wow. So we're back. That last line, I'm the exception, not the rule. And I think we've seen the rule play out in the war on drugs when you look at the numbers. And I hope that we've put some faces to this war and the casualties of this war and what it normally does. Um, It's amazing that we were able to see Morgan face to face because there's a very strong likelihood, you know, there's a lot of different ways that could have gone where we would have never known her. And she just would have been another casualty of this war. And I think it makes a lot of sense now, if you've kind of gone on this journey with us, why we, you know, saved uh, Morgan for last, because it touches on everything. Everything we talked about throughout this 
entire series, I think, she just had in her story there. Yeah. I thought it was so profound that she said every single one of my friends that died of an overdose was incarcerated multiple times. And so our government, yeah. who says that the entire purpose of this war on drugs is to get people, is to remove the scourge of drugs and get people clean in our country, because that's good for our country. And that's a good goal for everyone to have. It actually, like, exacerbates the problem. And you have these people here under your control, and we actually put them in a worse spot. And she just keeps saying, what are we doing? And sometimes when I'm doing my work, I say that to myself quite a bit as well. It's just like, what the fuck are we doing, guys? Right. I, that, that's just what stuck with me. Um in that episode and probably throughout this entire series. Yeah. And this has been a hell of a journey that I've been on with you, you know, just to this episode 10, man, this is the last episode. We started this thing uh, a little while ago. And I, I just hope that everybody that came along with us on the journey learned as much as I felt like I learned or was able to get a little more understanding into why things are the way they are and that they really don't have to be that way, you know? I mean, we might need to come back. We might need to come back. Should we do it? Because we might need to bring a season two back yeah. around just to, like, you know what I mean? We got to keep applying pressure. I think you're you right. You can't ease up. You can't ease up. We did a half-court press. We might as well go full-court press for some turnovers. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Season two, more solutions. Yeah. That's what I'm guaranteeing. <laughs> I, and and they're and they're out there. The playbook is there. Like we actually yeah. do have the playbook. And I want you know season two to like you said like expose a lot of these success stories, like the solutions that we're seeing. You know we touched on a little bit of you know places like you know Switzerland where they're you know actually treating this as a health issue, and some of the other places what Portugal's doing, and maybe we can find in the budget to allow you know Clayton and I to just go on like a European vacation for a few months and recording out there, and and we'll we see. We got to see what the Swiss are doing. Exactly. That's so that, that that works. Yeah, Bali, yeah. Hawaii, everywhere. The the Maldives have an excellent. <laughs> <laughs> drug program. <laughs> yeah, their, their forfeiture laws are a little suspect, but we're we're gonna get there. Their banking system solid though. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. have to go down. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, there is actually like these glimmers of hope and solutions and people doing things from a big, you know, from a countrywide standpoint, and then just communities figuring this out. And like we talked about, like just being just being a human being and showing empathy towards someone and like yeah. the successes that can come from that. And so I'd love to show a lot more of that to kind of outlay that playbook now that we've, you know, brought kind of a lot of the, uh, the, the problems. And now let's season two, let's bring a, a lot more of the solutions. Yes. I'm with it. Make sure you follow the war on drugs podcast. So you don't miss any new episodes or any of our quick fix bonus content. Thank you for listening. Executive producers for War on Drugs are Jason Flom and Kevin Wirtis. Senior producer is Michael Epstein. This episode was edited by Julia DeWitt, Michael Epstein, and Nick Massetti. Associate producer, sound design, and mix and mastering by Nick Massetti. Additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Anna McEntee. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Lava for Good. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Glod, and you can follow Clayton English on Instagram at Clayton English. The War on Drugs is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm your host, Clayton English. And I'm Greg Glod. And thanks for listening to the War on Drugs Podcast.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.